Welcome back to Frank Fryer Fridays. This is Father Patrick Bykowskis coming to you from St. Dominic Priory in St. Louis, Missouri. It's good to be back with you, and I have a little prayer that you've probably heard. It's called the Serenity Prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a prayer that I have said many times in the last 32 years since that very first meeting I attended in coming to understand some things about me that uh, have changed my life. You know, somebody somebody that uh, knows me well wrote an uh, email to me this week and talked about a little bit about the the grimness of uh, my life or the story so far. And I I guess that could come across, but I, I certainly want to impress upon you that what what has followed was anything but grim. I think it was it was pretty grim coming up to that point. Uh, the The life that I had was um, something that I'm. Well, I, I'm not going to say I'm not proud of it. It's just it was it was what a, what it is, and I I I can't change it. But thanks be to God, I found a way out of it. There were a lot of. Uh, people that I probably hurt along the way uh, as a result of my my disease. And I certainly came to understand it as a disease. But I'll tell you, after that first meeting, I could not have been happier. I'll tell you one little story. I was, I was thinking about when I was still drinking. I had come back from Charleston. And uh, it was it was a little while before I got, got sober, as I told you. And I remember this guy, Arnie Benmull, he owned a liquor store down the street from me. And I gave him a lot of business, a lot of business. <laughs> so I come back from Charleston and I move back into the old neighborhood and I go down to Arnie's liquor store, which was right on the corner, just a half a block from me. And he was one of these wise cracking guys, probably from New York originally. He sort of had that kind of an accent, always had a cigar in his mouth. And he sees me and he lights up and he says, Patrick, are you back home for good? Are you just visiting? He said, don't mess with me. <laughs> and I said, Arnie, I'm back for good, baby. And he said, he said, well, th- oh, thank God. Now I can send my children back to private school. <laughs> we got a big laugh out of that, but it's kind of, you know, it's sort of a, that's how much business I gave him. I used to order cases and cases of stuff, you know, and I would tell him I was having a party all the time and it was just stuff for me. But those days were now behind me, at least for a little while. I, I um, uh, was happy to, that, I, that I found my way out. Neil, my boss and my friend, was thrilled. He didn't think I was going to be able to do it. I, I, I surprised him and my friend Roy both. And I became uh, very, very serious about my program, going to meetings every day, and sometimes more than once a day. I, I enjoyed it. I, 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 I saw people that I had seen in my neighborhood, and I didn't know where they went, what bars they went to, and I ended up found, found out that they were going to, they were hanging out in the, in the basements of churches. 
and my my faith in God, which I guess you might say had sort of waxed and waned, but that I never stopped believing in God. And certainly it's it, it my my what we call higher power was more so the people in those rooms. That was that's what was different about this attempt. And so I was gaining a lot of wisdom from and uh, and hope from the experiences of those people there. Exactly two months to the day from my first um, meeting, I was going on a vacation to Acapulco, Mexico with a good friend of mine, and I had had these plans, and my sponsor uh, didn't ask me to change them, but he prepared me. He gave me all these sorts of publications that I needed to take with me and meeting schedules and support for me. And I, I, the thing is, is I didn't tell my friend that I had sobered up. And so we went to Mexico, to Acapulco, without that clarity. And, you know, a day or two into the trip, he asked me, he said, what, are you on the wagon or something? And I said, well, no, I just thought I would not drink for a little while. And I didn't tell him that I had come to this understanding about myself. Well, that's a funny thing about this disease. You, th you think you can gain control over it, and it's, it's not possible. The first step tells us we were powerless over alcohol, and our lives had become unmanageable. And my first sponsor told me, boy, if you can't do that first step perfectly, that's the only one you got to do perfectly. If you, if you can't do that one perfectly, you're not going to make it. And I, and I, I hadn't got there, because I thought I was stronger than the, my disease. And so after a few days, I thought, I'm going to have one drink. I'm going to have one Cuba Libra, a, a rum and coke. And uh, I, I had one. And then I had many, many more. It was a Katie bar the door. <laughs> you, there wasn't enough alcohol in that city to satisfy me. And the, the, the last full day we were there, I had been to Acapulco once when I was in high school. And there's this, if you've ever been there, of course, it's not very safe to go anymore. But if you've ever been there, then you'll know that there's this big central market. And I told my friend Jeff, this is what will happen. We'll, we'll approach the, the, the gates of this big market and some very nice, nicely dressed young man will come out and greet us and they'll offer to be our guide for a dollar or two, very minimal. And then they'll show us around whatever we want to, to get, whether we want to get shoes or switchblades or sarapis, silver, whatever. They'll take you and they'll, they'll bargain for you. So right on cue, very nicely dressed young man comes up, greets us. He speaks English and he starts to take us around. And we're about, this is in the, and this is in the morning. And uh, I hadn't had anything to drink that day. And he, uh, but I had had a lot to drink in the previous few days. And uh, he, he, so we're, we're into this shopping trip and about an hour or two into it. And he turns to me and he hands me a card. And on that card was something I had in my own wallet. And it was the serenity prayer. And I was stunned. And I said, why are you giving me that? And he said, I don't know. Something's telling me that I need to give you this card. And I said, 
and, and it had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions on it as well. And I said, no, tell me what, did somebody tell you to give me this card? I was really insistent about it. And he said, no, no, I just felt like I needed to, to give this to you. Well, I'll tell you, it was like a bolt of lightning. I was so stunned by that encounter with him. And, um, and I haven't had a drink since then. And that was um, November the 1st, in 1988. And we, um, we went back to Washington, D.C. I fessed up to my friend about what, I, what was really going on with me. I, I, I told my sponsor almost immediately, and he encouraged me to go into a, a, a inpatient, or an outpatient treatment program and I, for 90 days, and I did that. And all of it was great advice. All of it helped to establish me more in this journey. Uh, and I learned a lot more about myself and a lot more about the disease and the things that I, I don't need to be uh, ashamed about. Um, but the, the, of course, the traditions. And so this is a sort of a, you know, a squeaky part of it or a, a touchy part of it because we have this, this anonymity. But I, I felt like in this context on this, on this podcast, I could talk about it it's not like I, uh, the same sort of uh, format, I guess. I, I, you know, if anybody has ever heard me preach, people that are in the program know that I talk program stuff when I'm preaching sometimes, oftentimes. But typically, I, it, there's this tradition that we, we are um, in, the, in press and in other ways, we, we, we maintain our anonymity. I remember when I was living in Washington, D.C. then, and Elizabeth Taylor was married to Senator Warner, and she sort of was in and out and in and out of the program, got the poor thing, and I got to meet her a couple times, a lovely woman. Um, but, you know, that was a sort of reason why you why this anonymity was important, because people could look at it and say, well, that program doesn't work. Look at what's poor Elizabeth Taylor. She's in and out and in and out of the program. And, and yeah, that's a reality. Some people don't get it right away. And sadly, some people never get it. But it does work. So I'm, I'm back at work. And uh, I'm you know, I think I was always a good employee uh, as far as Neil was concerned, but I think I became an even better employee. But then something else changed is that the money that I was making and I was I, I, I was um, I was making a lot of money. Neil was very generous and, and I had more than I needed. I figured out that that's not what I needed, though, to in order to stay sober. I was having to drive to from downtown Washington, D.C. to Jessup, Maryland every day. And, you know, really being focused on my, my sobriety, getting sober, being attentive to meetings, going to meetings every day, that took priority. And so after a few months, I quit that job, that really, really good job, and I took a position with a temp agency. And it's just what I needed. That I, I, would, I would bounce around. Sometimes I would have positions for, for a couple of weeks, sometimes for a couple of days. One ended up several months, the very last one I had. But I was all of them were nine to five jobs. There was no pressure, and I made I made enough money. And it was a, it was a humbling experience to go from being a vice president of a company to being, you know, something that I was mostly it was sort of like secretarial positions. But I I, I didn't mind it. I didn't mind it at all. Uh, 
I, I, I need, really needed to do whatever I needed to do to save my life. That's, the, that's what it was about. I, I went down to a, an AA convention in Florida a couple years after I was sober. So it was a bit, probably been, been March of 1990. And um, those, were, those were great events. They have these conventions all over the place and um, made some really good friends there. And, and one of them, um, he, 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 he moved up to Washington, D.C., uh, not long after, um, and did, wasn't a person that was in the in the program, but but um, but never drank. I never could understand those people that could have just one drink or not drink at all. But um, he, he was in between uh, jobs one time, and so we both decided that um, we would go to Europe. And it's 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 kind of a long story that even too long for this format, I think, but. There was a lot of things that came together financially, and, and it, 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 it seems to me, when I look back on it still, really almost, if not truly miraculous things that came together that allowed me to go to Europe for an entire summer. And uh, my friend Gilberto had, was fluent in uh, several languages, uh, he was from Brazil, so he was fluent in Portuguese and French, English, of course, and Italian, and I was good in Spanish and Italian. And we, di we didn't have any sort of a, uh, of itinerary. We, we, our only plan was that we would never uh, stay less than two nights in any place, and typically it was, it was longer than that. And so we spent, we started in France and then we went to Italy and then we went back to France and then we went to Spain and then we went to Portugal for an entire summer. One of the best of my life. And I went back to see my relatives. And Gilberto went, my, my friend went with me. And it was interesting. When I had been to Italy that first time and I was with them for six weeks, I thought that we drank, well, there's no thinking about it. We drank a lot. <laughs> we counted it one time. There was these friends that came from Rome. They were communists. Boy, we had we had such a great time with them. And they were there for two weeks. And that's the week, those two weeks, we counted how many bottles of wine we went. And it was dozens of bottles of wine. And so I always thought my relatives were like really big drinkers. And then when I came back this other time, I realized, well, they weren't. They, they were, I think, trying to be good hosts or something. And they drank very, very normally. So I, uh, <laughs> I learned, I've been back to see them many times and they're still very normal. They always think, they always wanted me to drink a little bit, you know, but I, I, I beg off. Well, thing was, we had this great time and, and, and I came back and I was just dead broke, dead broke. And I, I go back to uh, temping a little bit and trying to put things together to make ends meet and it happened that my old boss that worked for Governor Thompson was now working for the first President Bush. And I contacted her and, you know, her name is Gail Cousins and I, I've mentioned her previously, what a good friend she uh, had was. And, you know, I, I'm sure she was aware of, I, I really wasn't, 
giving it my all when I worked for Governor Thompson and I worked with her in the state of Illinois office. But somehow she found out about what I, I had been doing and this journey that I was on. And uh, her and another person, Ellen Craig, uh, worked on the uh, some opportunities. I ended up getting an interview at the White House and and was offered a position with uh, the first President Bush. I had I had worked on his campaign, so it was a very different situation than I had tried to get a job with the Reagan administration. And I had met him, but you know, we, I don't know, I can't say I know President Bush, but we had met early on when he was, uh, had just come back from China. He had been the liaison before we had him, uh, full ambassadors there. So I got this a political appointment to, to work at the Department of Health and Human Services, and I was making a lot of money again. And I had an opportunity to spend half of my time in Baltimore because I was working with the Social Security Administration in a particular way. And, and I, so I had an office in Washington and an office in Baltimore, and I've always liked Baltimore. So after 18 years of being in Washington, 17 years, I guess, I, I moved to Baltimore. And I, I had an office in Washington, D.C. and an office in Baltimore. And I was going to have to commute a couple of days a week. And so I thought, well, here's my opportunity. I, like, I really like Baltimore. I'm going to give it, a, give it a, a, a little chance, give it an experience. And so I did, and I loved it. It was, I love Baltimore. What a great, it's a real city. Not that Washington isn't, but you know, it's, it's people sit out on their stoops and there's this sense of neighborhood. And I had a church, St. Ignatius Church on St. Paul Street that I found, and there was a wonderful community there. And so I, I would uh, commute a couple of days a week down to Washington, D.C., and then I'd, I'd spend the rest of the time in Baltimore. And one of the best years of my, my life, I, I, uh, I became very fond of Baltimore and still am. It was while I was there that those darn colts left like thieves in the night, and I never could forgive the the cults for that. It was a traumatic experience for the people of Baltimore. Well, that time, of course, came to an end. But before President Bush lost to, 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 to Bill Clinton, I had kind of decided it was time for me to, to move on. I had enjoyed my time in Washington, D.C. It had given me a lot of opportunities, a lot of heartbreaks, too. But I, I felt like it was time to go back to Illinois, and then the the electorate decided it for me. President Bush lost, and we went back and forth for several weeks. Howard Baker was adamant that we all resign from our positions, and George Bush, God bless him, all the political appointees were, you know, we'd be out of work, and, and Clinton wanted us to stay on, and Bush was going to let us stay on until they filled our positions, which... It was an extraordinary thing, considering it was a Republican administration going over to Democrats. But that's way—that's the civility that existed back in Washington in those days. But Howard Baker said, "No, we don't owe this guy anything. He beat us. Let him, let him muddle through on his own." So then we had to—we res- all had to resign, all of the political appointees. So on January twentieth of that year, um, nineteen ninety-three, my job ended on the on inauguration day, and. I was very, very blessed that the people I had worked for back in the Thompson days were now 
in administration of uh, in the administration of Jim Edgar, and so I had I got a, another uh, um, job almost immediately. And, well, I I didn't have there was any there wasn't any gap at all. I drove out from Washington D.C. with my stuff on January twentieth and started a job almost immediately in the term um, of uh, J- Jim Edgar and. That's where we'll pick up my time in Springfield, Illinois, the land of Lincoln. So uh, God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. Oh, I wanted to say, I, I keep forgetting, there's a couple birthdays. Janet Day's got a birthday coming up, and Joe Viator's got a birthday coming up, and I think it was just Mike and Nancy Piggott's anniversary. So happy anniversary to them as well. And, of course, I uh, miss you. And look forward to the day that we were all, uh, our paths will cross again. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.